your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. My distinct pleasure now to introduce our guest speaker for today, Pastor David Lee. He is a, an assistant pastor at Redeemer Downtown. Uh, he is a, a, a dear brother and a close friend, but more importantly, he's a, a great preacher. I remember uh, the first time I met uh, David, it was at a wedding I attended, and he was the MC, and I was like, man, he's one of the best wedding MCs I've ever heard. Um, if only he were in ministry. Well, good news, uh, that, is, that, is, that is what he does, and we get the pleasure of hearing good news uh, from him today. So let's welcome Pastor David. Thank you, uh, Gene. Is this on? Am I good? Great. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Gene. You said this in the morning, too, but you said, like, I'm one of the best wedding MC. I'm like, who, who else better than me out here? I want to meet them. No. Uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you that, Lord, what a wonderful truth that we are reminded of this day, that we're not left on our own, that, Father, you are present and you speak to us, you counsel us, you convict us through your word. And so we pray that, Lord, you would do just that, that you'd be here now, you, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that might know and understand and trust you more this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here at Exilic for a whole host of reasons, but one of the reasons that might be a little bit weird uh, is that I actually, I really love the name Exilic. I like saying it. It sounds cool. Uh, some of you may not even know what that means because you're new. Stick around. I'm sure they'll do a DNA a sermon series sometime in the future. But I love the word exilic and the idea of exilic because it's this, this idealistic paradigm of what the Christian faith, what genuine Christian faith must look like in New York City in 2022. And as a bit of a romantic and an idealist myself, I like that that pushes back against the Christianity that I tend to want, in my flesh, what I want. Because I'm not trying to be in exile. I don't want to be in exile. You probably don't either. You want to be home. We want Christianity to be comfortable, right? We don't want it to demand too much of us. We uh, want to kind of have it in our back pocket so that we can pull it out when we need it. Like, that's the kind of Christianity that my flesh often wants. But when we look at the Bible, of course, that's not real Christianity. And so, in other words, this exilic mindset can help guard us, and it helps guard me, 
against sort of a, a stale and a lifeless version of, Christ, of the Christian faith or a cultural Christianity that says, well, I'm a Christian because I go to church for one hour a week or I go to community groups, so now make it two, three hours a week, I do church kind of things. No, that's sort of the opposite of the exilic paradigm, right? Uh, there's a writer, <clears throat> Richard Lovelace. He talks, he writes about revivals, and he talks about what a vibrant spiritual life looks like. And he says that today, fairly shallow spirituality is the bread and butter of our daily experience. And he says that we think Christianity is about sound doctrine and correct social engagement or morality or the right institutional policies. And when that happens... Christianity becomes powerless and it falls into decay. And that's just not what we see in the New Testament, right? After this climactic event of the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrated on Easter, something that happened once in a lifetime by the Son of God coming and dying for our sins and then being raised from the dead, and then the power of the Spirit comes and that launches the New Testament church, what we see in Scripture is so different from that. Right, because you read scripture, and of course the churches all have—they're all messed up, like you and I. But these new Christian converts had one thing for sure about them, and that was their entire lives were changed. Right? Their lives were now full of real life and joy and mission and faithfulness and love and care for one another, all in the face of extreme oppression and persecution. And so that's why I want us to look at First Thessalonians uh, today. Because to me, it's a, it's a model of this New Testament church living out in the power of the resurrection. And it gives us a picture of what real and authentic and genuine Christian faith ought to look like, can look like, by the power of the Spirit. Something that I think we often lose sight of. And it's not a lifeless spirituality. And so I, I think as we look at that, it's going to help us to consider a really important question that maybe we haven't thought of uh, recently, or maybe not as deeply as we should, and that is just a simple question of how do you know that you're a Christian? Or what happens in your life when the gospel comes into your life? That's what we're going to see through the life of the uh, Christians in First Thessalonians. And when we look at our passage, we'll see that real Christianity will show us at least three things in our lives. When the gospel comes into our life, we'll see at least three things happen to us. First, you'll see the disturbance of the gospel, then you'll see the power of the gospel in your life. And then finally, you'll see the beauty of the gospel. So the disturbance, the power, and the beauty. So first, let's start with the disturbance. Now let me give us a little bit of context here as to what's happening here in this church uh, in the first century in Thessalonica. And to do that, we actually need to go back to Acts chapter 17. Because in Acts chapter 17, uh, it lays out Paul's missionary journey to Thessalonica. And when you read that, it says that Paul and Silas went and they preached the gospel. Many were converted, many women as well. Many were converted and then he organized these new Christian converts into a new church plant, kind of like Exilic. But then we read in verse 5 in Acts chapter 17, this is what happens after that. But the Jews were jealous and they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And then later on in that chapter, you see how this mob goes to the house of one of the people that was um, 
sort of housing Paul and Silas, and they, they kidnap him from his house. They drag him out onto the streets, and they take him to the authorities because they want to quelch the Christian movement. And so Paul and Silas have to flee the city in the middle of the night for fear of their lives. And so the question when you read that, though, is basically, well, why is there such an uproar? Why are so many people so upset that the gospel came to this city of Thessalonica? Well, when you understand the context and the background of the city, I think it's helpful because this is a pretty unique city. One of the things that made it unique was that it was a really pluralistic society and uniquely religious. Right, so the way that it was situated, uh, Thessalonica was uh, located on a major road that's heading to Rome. So a lot of that part of the world would pass by through Thessalonica. And there was a major ship harbor that was right there. And so it connected sort of that whole part of the world, which meant that it catered to every kind of God in that known part of the world. So there were temples and there were shrines uh, for the worship of Egyptian gods and Greek gods and Roman gods. And all of so it was a very religious city, very pluralistic, but here's the unique thing about it, that no matter where you came from and what your religious affiliation was, one thing had to be true of you in that city, and that was that you had to worship the Roman imperial cult which was sort of the, the local or national religion of that city that worshipped Caesar, of course, the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor, Caesar as a god. So that's the first unique thing about the city. But then the second thing about the city is that it was a free city, even though it was under Roman, um, Roman uh, occupation, right? And so as a free city, it had a lot of unique and special privileges that other cities just did not have. Like it didn't have military occupation, they could mint their own coins and basically create their own currency, which means that they ran their own economy. They could deal with their own political situations with their own elected officials. So it, this is kind of like the best case scenario if you are a Roman city. So when you put those things two together, let me ask a question. Now, what do you think would happen if the Roman Empire found out that the citizens of Thessalonica totally start to disregard the Roman imperial cult? probably not good, right? It would probably move quickly from the best case scenario, receiving and enjoying lots of privileges, to becoming the worst case scenario. And so there were a lot of consequences that the city faced because of these Christians, because the life that they had acquired for themselves, full of comfort and peace and prosperity, that was the thing that was starting to be threatened, and that is why it makes sense that there was a lot of hostility and opposition and persecution for the Christians. Because this, here was this new religion that went directly against all that they held dear in their lives. And they're looking around, they're saying, oh my goodness, this new religion, these people are serious about it. They're willing to give it all up. They're willing to go against the Roman Empire. They're willing to live without the social benefits, the economic benefits the relational and communal stability that they had enjoyed. So this is very threatening. Uh, one commentator says this, describes it this way. says, there was no syncretism between the new faith and old religious loyalties, nor did they take, up, uh, did they take a half step by adopting God into their pantheon, placing him alongside their other religious loyalties. No, they took the radical step of abandoning those gods that were part of the worship of their families and their communities. When the Christian faith arrived in the cities and towns of the empire, its presence was rightly perceived as an attack on the images of God. And of course, therefore, 
as an attack on the image of Caesar and who Caesar is. Now, that's the context that helps us to understand this first point, and that in real Christianity that you see, you must see a disturbance that the gospel brings into your life. We see that in the life of the Thessalonians, willing to now live a completely different life than what they once had before. Why? Because the Thessalonians, they rightly understood what the gospel is. I'm sure you've heard this before, but the gospel is good news, right? The gospel is not good advice on what you should do with your life to be happier. The gospel is not good opinion. The gospel is not a self-help therapeutic sort of mantra to live by. No, it's news about a historical fact, namely that Jesus as the Son of God came and lived and died the death that you should have died for your sins and He rose again to give you life in Him. This historical fact that now confronts every other fact in this world and in your life. Now, when the gospel comes into your life, it now makes you reconsider everything that you knew about the world and your life. And it's not just a small random fact. This is a message and a fact that is so total in its message that there is no way that you can compartmentalize Christianity or relegate it to some obscure part of your life. Well, I just want it for my relationships. Or I just want it for my spiritual self-help well-being. No, that's not how Christianity works. It's a fact that can turn the world upside down. It's a fact that can turn your world upside down. And that is why Christianity is so inherently threatening to anyone living for anything else. There's this, I don't know if you guys know, um, obviously you guys know C.S. Lewis, right? But uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's Lucy, right? And Lucy meets Aslan, and Aslan's this big lion. And Lucy's like scared and says, oh, is, is he safe? And she asks the, the weird animal, like, is he safe? And the weird animal says, of course he's not safe but he's good. That's a picture of Christianity and who Jesus is. Of course he's not safe. Christianity is not safe. It is inherently threatening to anyone and, every, and anyone living for anything else. In other words, the gospel exposes the foundations of your life or what you are really living for, the thing that you are really building your life around, the thing that's really at the center that you hold most dear. And that is why, my friends, there is this uproar in the city in Thessalonica when Christianity comes because it's threatening their actual God that they worship. They don't care about Caesar. They don't care about really the Egyptian God of the moon or the sun. No, what are they really worshiping that they don't want to give up? The life that they had, the comfort, the reputation, the prestige all that came with the economic benefits of being a free city under Rome. That is what the city was really worshiping and holding on to. And so you can kind of imagine them sort of saying, hey, Christians, take it easy here. Don't worry, we got room for your God too. Just go ahead and give him lip service. Go ahead and do the religious observances. We're not going to stop you. But hey, let's not shake things up. Let's not disturb the real, true, peaceful status quo that we built for ourselves because that's not good for me. And if it's not good for me, it's not going to be good for you. But the Thessalonians, they don't. They don't take a half step, right? 
Because when real Christianity takes a hold of your life, it comes straight for the foundations to reveal what it is that you are really living for. You know, I think a lot of times we don't really consider that question. And if we're not confronted by it here in a service with the gospel of grace in Jesus, when will you ever really consider that? What is the thing that you must have in your life that you are working so desperately for? The thing that if you lost it or at the prospect of losing it, it would make you not even want to live. What is that thing that you cannot lose? Family, kids, your career, your reputation, your status, how people view you, approval. And we've got to honestly take stock of that very thing. Because you see, my friends, that is the thing that is keeping Jesus away. That is the very thing that's stopping him from doing the work that he needs to be doing in your life. But that's such a big question, right? And we don't really want to ask that. And so what do we do? We find ways to just sort of keep Jesus at bay. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I do these things. But you know what? I like keeping Jesus in the upper right corner bedroom of my room so that when I need him or when I'm in trouble, I can open the door and I can ask him for help. That's the kind of Jesus and that's the kind of Christianity that I want. And that keeps us, keeps Jesus from doing the foundational work that we need, and that is not real Christianity. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, he's stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on, and you knew that those jobs needed, needed to be done, and so you're not surprised by it. But now, presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. That's what the Thessalonians get. And that's why we see the disruption of the gospel in real Christianity. Because they had allowed Jesus to get close enough to the center to really disturb their lives. To really disturb our little cottages that we're building. So let me pause and just ask us a question for us to consider today. That if you consider yourself a, a Christian here, how has Jesus disrupted your life in any way? If your life looks exactly the same before you met Jesus to after you met Jesus, I can kind of guarantee you that's not real Christianity. If you've never been threatened by it, that means that you've just kept Jesus far on the outside. You haven't really dealt with the truth claims about what he says about who he is and why he came and who you are in relationship to that. You're not letting him reconstruct your home the way that Christianity is meant to. Now, you might think of him as a, like a nice guy, a mentor, you know, a prophet. You might even think of him as a great friend or even your savior, but he is not your risen Lord over your life. That's the first thing that we see in real Christianity 
and the Thessalonians. But the second thing that we see is not only this, this disruption that must come into your life, but we see the experience of power, right? In verse 5 that was read, the Apostle Paul says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And then in verse 6 it says, And they welcomed the message in severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Man, when I read things like that, and it's, it's littered all across the New Testament, persecution, and yet there's joy and a different way to handle it, I just think, and I'm, probably, I'm sure you think, well, I could never do that. I could never do what the Thessalonians did. That is an incredible faith in the face of suffering. I hate suffering. I don't like allergies. I don't like mosquitoes. I don't like when, when my arm falls asleep. You know, so many ways that I don't like suffering. But we've got to see that the Apostle Paul, he's not commending their faith to make a point of how excellent these Christians were. No, he's actually reminding them of the real reason that they became Christians. And that is that the gospel did not simply come with words, but a power that was necessary for this faith and for this life that they were called to. A power came from outside of them. And this is really important for us thinking types, inspiring thinkers to believe and inspiring believers to think. Thinking is so incredibly important, right thinking. But us thinking types, us Presbyterian types, we like to think our way to right living in the right relationship with God. Right? We want the right arguments. We want the right doctrine. We want the right truth propositions for it to make sense to us. And we think that that's what's going to change our lives. And that is absolutely important. And Christianity is based on the foundation of truth. And so we can never let go of that. But you got to see that those propositions are not Christianity. That's not what makes Christianity truly Christianity. Because real Christianity comes with a power of the Holy Spirit that is completely outside of you and your doing. I love how Welch preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones highlights this very truth, this uh, doctrine, to us uh, in his commentary on the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we see sort of the, uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, something that we celebrated here not too long ago. And with the pouring of the Spirit, the apostle Peter, he preaches the very first sermon. And when you read Acts chapter 2, it says that the Holy Spirit came, Peter preached this sermon, and 3,000 people were cut to the heart and they, were, uh, and they gave their lives, and they were converted to Christianity. 3,000 people came to faith. Now, do you think it was because Peter was the best preacher in the world that he had the perfect articulation of the gospel, that he had the perfect formula of Scripture plus logic plus cultural awareness and analysis of the heart? Did he bring those things perfectly together for 3,000 people to be cut to the heart? Absolutely not. That doesn't make sense. That's not the thing that can account for such a life-altering event. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, listening to the gospel, they were disturbed and they cried out that this, and that this was the work of the Holy Spirit. And, other, and without that work of the Holy Spirit, there would never have been a Christian church outside of that. And that is the very explanation of revivals and reformations that have come down throughout the centuries. That the Christian faith believes that there is an active and personal and powerful force outside of us that is bringing you to faith. 
And that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you know, Christianity is not something that you can just take up like a, like a new sport or a hobby. Like, you know, you can just take up fencing because you watch the Korean drama on Netflix, right? It's not something you can just take up. Yeah, some of you are, you know what I'm talking about. You, I, you've looked it up. Oh, and then you're like, fencing gear is really expensive, so I should definitely not do that. But you can't take up Christianity like you can take up any kind of sport. No, by definition, Martin Lloyd-Jones says Christianity is something that takes you up. Christianity is not something that you can do, but Christianity is something that is done to you. And I know that sounds sort of vague to some of us. You're like, what is this guy talking about? But then others of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. That you can't give an adequate explanation as to how you became a Christian or why one day your life changed or why one day you went from... Uh, hearing the gospel propositions over and over again to it all of a sudden becoming blazingly true and alive to you. Why? How? When? How one day you went from being a cultural Christian or maybe even being against Christianity to all of a sudden having a faith that was living, that was personal, that was deep. What explanation do you have for that? What truth proposition What argument got you there? And of course, arguments are important. Thinkers are welcome here. We have to think these things out. But I've heard the testimonies of many of you from your pastors. I've heard about what was happening here over several several years, and now many of you came to faith. And as much and as great as the exilic pastors are at presenting a reasonable faith for you to believe, I can guarantee you it was not just their preaching that got you there. But there was a moment, if we're honest with ourselves, where Christianity took you up. Where you were no longer investigating it, but it started to turn its hands around on you and Christianity started investigating you. Where your heart is, what do you think about these things? Of course, as important as having a rationally sound and intellectually sound faith is, and trust me, Christianity can stand up to the best of the philosophies of our age and the intellectual stretching of our day. Absolutely, it can. But at the same time, we all know people who've asked questions, heard answers, and yet they did not believe until what? One day, the Holy Spirit came and convicted them with power. That is what it means to be a Christian. The power must come from outside of you to bring you to faith. And that is the very same power of the Holy Spirit that came to the church in Thessalonica and it had taken them up. That's why they turned from idols in the face of great suffering and loss. That's why they had the joy in the face of suffering and loss because it was given to them by the power of the Holy Spirit for this disruption of the gospel that's brought into your life. And this was not their own doing. No, these were not super Christians of the first century. Otherwise, we will think, because I tend to think, well, I could never do that, nor do I ever want to do that. But when you understand that power comes, you start to see faith is a gift. And that gift is not only to believe, but that gift is also to help us have faith in the midst of this life to renovate our character in our hearts in a way that helps us to handle what it is that we're called to. 
And our characters change. Who we are starts to change. That's why in verse 3, Paul recounts their story and he says, Remember your work that was produced by faith, your labor of love, your endurance inspired by hope in Jesus. He's saying, this is what the Spirit did in you. And that's something that we see all throughout the New Testament churches that were planted in this first century. And that's because there was this unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came in that first century to launch Christianity, and now it's a global religion, as many of you know. And there have been pockets and epics of time since then where the Spirit was uniquely poured out for revival, where people just came to faith in droves. And so we don't necessarily expect the Holy Spirit to work in that kind of a way now all the time. But man, I think a lot of times, us thinking types, we live as if the Holy Spirit stopped working altogether today. And we rely on, therefore, our own power, our own strength, our own reason and intellect. And when that happens, it leads to lifeless spirituality. It leads to dead works when we forget that Christianity, real Christianity, is about a power, a living power that moves towards us, that meets with us, that lives in us, that convicts us, and also comforts us. So real Christianity has a disruption in your life. It's got a power. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. But then lastly, this is how you know if you're a Christian, is that that disturbance caused, met with this power to believe, they come together to help you to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. You got to get to the beauty of the gospel. That's what we see in verse 9 and 10. Paul says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, the question still probably remains in our heads, you know, why would the Thessalonians go so much against the grain of this comfortable life that they had set up, this best case scenario? Why would they do that by turning away from these idols? Why would they have their lives so disrupted? Well, one reason, of course, is simply that the gospel is true that they came to believe. And the gospel, the good news is this, that Jesus, as the very Son of God, came and He lived the perfect life that we should have lived but did not. And therefore, the condemnation that we ought to have, this sense of wrath that we know is something is wrong within us and something is wrong in this world and something and someone needs to do something about it, that Jesus is that one who came to do that by living the perfect life that we should have lived and by dying the death that we deserved for turning our backs on the true and living God, by worshiping idols of ourselves, comfort, prestige, all of those things. And he dies the death that we should have died in order to pay the penalty of our sin to rescue us from that wrath. And that just clearly and simply is the gospel. That's the good news. And I guarantee you that you hear that very message preached week in and week out here at Exilic. But it's not until the power comes for us to believe it. And when it does, those simple statements and propositions now become blazingly beautiful to you. 
because that is the only way to turn from idols in repentance and live to serve the living and true God like the Thessalonians. You can't do that out of fear or obligation or duty. If you try it, you will fail in a short amount of time. No, only beauty can truly change your heart and turn you from idols to the living God. Thomas Chalmers, who's a Puritan speaker, he calls that the expulsive power of affection. He says that idols can't be expelled from our hearts. They must get replaced in our hearts. And real Christianity comes when Jesus now starts to become better than anything that any other idol is ever offering to you. And when he does, he, your eyes start to get opened up to what idolatry really is, the thing that you are really living for and how it cannot save you, how it cannot give you the thing that you are looking for it to, whether it is comfort or relationships or money, power, status, whatever it is that you think is going to save you, your eyes get opened up to the true nature of idolatry and idols. And Andy Crouch gives a great diagnosis of what idols really are. He says, all idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, which initially seemed so reasonable for worship and sacrifice. You know, like, oh, I'll, just, I'll just work 80, 90 hours a week. It'll be fine. And then once I get to a place, right? Oh, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. In the end, idols, they fail completely, even as they make categorical demands on your life. Idols ask for more and more while giving you less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. You see how idols cannot give you what you truly desire and on the flip side... When you see idols failing to give you the life that you want, the freedom that you want, the comfort that you want, the status that you want, on the flip side, you start to see Jesus for who he really is. You start to see grace as this deep well of beauty, of like drinking from a deep well in a parched desert. That every other idol will demand everything from you and give you nothing back. But Jesus is the only thing that you can worship who has everything. As the Son of God, He's got everything. But He willingly lays it all down and lives as an exile. Why? For you. For me, He's the only thing that you can worship that has given you everything and didn't demand not just nothing. He took on the worst of who we are. Your rags for his riches. That's how you know that you're a Christian. When the beauty of Jesus begins to melt your heart and it expels the idols out of the, th the center of your life and he replaces it and he comes into your life. Because you see, without the beauty of Jesus, you will always be afraid or reluctant to truly trust him with your whole life, no matter what comes. If you try to just obey him out of fear or out of duty, no. But true Christianity delights in the law of the Lord. It trusts in him. It follows him no matter what the future holds. And like the Thessalonians, it waits for him 
and the true homecoming that they have. Living in exiles in this land instead because Jesus is your treasure and the thing that you're living for. Do you know this Christianity? It's a, like it's, it's literally, it is available to you now to live in it now. Do you understand that? These are not super Christians in the, in the first century. This is the life that's offered to us now and today. Has your life been disrupted? Have you experienced power? And is Jesus beautiful to you yet? If not, take the gospel deeper and deeper into your heart and let it warm you up until those idols begin to look like what they really, really are. False gods that cannot save. And here's the kicker. For this church in Thessalonica, because of their faith and because of what happened to them, the message rang out about who they were. And it encouraged that entire region, this very connected city, also connected to the rest of the world. The message about who Jesus is started to ring out from them, and revival came. Imagine what can happen in New York City if we here take seriously who Jesus is and what He's done, how far the message can ring out from this city. Amen. Let's pray. Father, who are we that we'd be deserving of your grace and this kind of love and this kind of life? And yet, that is what you offer us today and now. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would convict us, that you would meet us by the power of your Spirit, and help us to turn to you in every area of your life. Father, we don't want cottages that we've built up for ourselves. Lord, we desire the palace that you're building in us and through us. Help, it, help us to that end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.